Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Because we got the alternative energy right. making our free autonomy. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, my name's Mara. This episode of the Radioactive Show was recorded and produced on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Noongar people for 3CR Melbourne. On this week's show, we hear an interview recorded by K.A. Garlic with Ralph Hutchinson. Ralph is the coordinator of Arepa, the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance. He tells us about the Y-12 bomb plant at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and about the US government's plan for the modernisation of their nuclear industry. So, K.A., it's really great to be joining you today via Zoom across the many miles. Um, I am Ralph Hutchison. I am the coordinator of the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance, which is located in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, It's a very small community in uh, eastern Tennessee that is dedicated to building nuclear weapons for the most part. Um, The highly enriched uranium that fueled the world's first atomic bomb, Little Boy, was manufactured in Oak Ridge. Um, and we've continued to be a key part of nuclear weapons production ever since. And Ralph, can you, the focus of this interview today will be on a general briefing on the current issues that you're facing at Y12. Um, There's also plans to continue building bombs at Oak Ridge, but there's also been some um, earthquake studies. Could you, um, and the expansion, these are big, big questions. Maybe we can break them up, but um, just a brief outline of the current issues at Y12 would be great. Sure. So, um, well, to put it in the context, these issues are arising because, uh, and maybe your listeners know a bunch of this, the um, United States is in the process of modernizing our nuclear weapons program from the ground up um, at every stage, and they plan to spend more than $2 trillion over the next 30 years to just completely make everything new. Uh, And that starts with the weapons production facilities, one of which is in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So this whole project is called modernization. And in the course of their effort to modernize, to replace the old facilities with new facilities, we're learning an awful lot about safety and other issues. Um, So... Uh, Ten years ago, they announced they were going to build a new bomb plant in Oak Ridge to replace the ex- the existing one, and they called it the Uranium Processing Facility because they don't just call them bomb plants anymore. They give it a nice, innocuous name, uh, and they have ever since been uh, making the plans to do that and actually began construction about a year and a half ago, building the concrete uh, foundation and the walls and things like that. Um, in the process of doing that, in our country, you have to Uh, perform certain environmental analyses. You have to do an environmental impact statement. Um, And that's the process that we find ourselves in now. So in 2011, they prepared an environmental impact statement for the new bomb plant. Uh, But by 2014, their plans had changed dramatically um, because the old one was going to cost, the old plan would have cost too much. And So when they changed their plans, we said, well, you have to go back and look at your environmental impact statement because a significant part of their plans, instead of replacing all their old buildings, they were going to continue to use two 
uh, very buildings that are more than 50 years old. They acknowledge that they don't meet environmental regulations, um, especially with regard to earthquakes. And they said they were not going to upgrade them, but they're going to use them for 34, 30 more years until 2050. Um, and they said uh, they would deal with safety issues by establishing a policy of acceptable risk. Uh, and um, so that happened in 2014. And we said, you have to do a new environmental impact statement. And they said, no, we don't. Um, but the law did require them to do what's called a supplement analysis, which is to analyze the old document to see if they have to supplement it with a new document. Uh, and the other thing that happened in 2014, our US Geological Survey updated its earthquake hazard maps. And that happens every five or eight years. They just do that as a matter of course. But this was the biggest overhaul they'd done uh, since 2003. And it incorporated data from Fukushima and all kinds of new earthquake data. Uh, the bottom line was the East Tennessee Seismic Zone, where Oak Ridge is, uh, turned out to have the second highest level of risk increase in the country. California was number one. East Tennessee Seismic Zone is number two. So the earthquake risks went up. At the same time, their plans changed to use these old uh, unsafe buildings for another 30 years. And then so we doubled down on our demands that they do a new environmental impact statement. And they said no, and we took them to court. Uh, in 2017, we filed a lawsuit in federal court. And in 2019, we won. And the judge said to them, you have to go back and uh, uh, do a new supplement analysis. She threw out their, the paperwork they did in 2016. She threw out their new record of decision. She threw out their paperwork in 2018. Um, and uh, they came back and said, well, we're going to keep building the new bomb plant while we do this new paperwork. Um, we filed a motion with the court to enforce her order, the judge, Pamela Reeve, um, and that's still pending. We haven't got an outcome from that yet. In the meantime, we've learned that there are all kinds of other safety issues that over the course of 70 years of building bombs in these old facilities, they have highly enriched uranium they can't keep track of. They have what they call accumulated holdup uh, in pipes. In they have stuff, you know, processes that they don't use anymore, equipment that they, that they don't use anymore. They replaced with more modern equipment, but the old stuff is still sitting there, and it has uranium chips and filings and stuff inside it. And they haven't kept track of all that kind of stuff. So they have criticality safety issues. Literally every week, the safety board uh, writes them up for another kind of a criticality safety issue. So we're in this sort of ongoing series of revelations of how unsafe the current nuclear weapons production uh, operations are in Oak Ridge. That's a great, great summer bit also, pretty disturbing. Um, just touching back, and I could be going off topic here, what do you think is um, the earthquake increase risk. What do you have any idea of why that has increased over the over the years, or it's always been in Oak Ridge? Well, it's all. There's always been a significant risk of earthquakes in Oak Ridge. I think the the increase is an indication of how much more we're learning about seismic conditions. What what creates earthquakes? You know what the uh, 
what the likelihood is. As far back as 1994, there was an article done by the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill that was published in Science Magazine that looked at the East Tennessee seismic zone. This was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And that article said uh, it is a very high activity zone, but the ac activity is very small. So we have, we've had two dozen earthquakes since November of last year that happened within 60 miles of Oak Ridge but they were all 2.3 magnitude, uh, 2.8 magnitude, you know, relatively small. People feel them. Mm -hmm. um, in the court, in the judge's ruling in our court case, she mentioned that one afternoon the courthouse shook from an earthquake um, in, wow. where she said, it's hard for this court to imagine a more important case coming before it. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so we feel all these little earthquakes and for a long time, the established wisdom was, well, you're just in a, you know, that just says you're going to keep having little earthquakes, little bitty earthquakes. They don't really matter if you build your building sturdy enough, you won't even know they happen, blah, blah, blah. And the Science Magazine article in the North Carolina Chapel Hill researchers said a, an abundance of low-level earthquake activity doesn't necessarily mean the future is more low-level. It could be a setup for a big one. Now. Uh, the other things that we've learned doing our research is that since 2011, the last time they did an environmental impact statement, um, at the University of Tennessee, you know, it has a seismology department. They have a geophysical department. And one of the researchers there has, uh, with his field teams, documented that the East Tennessee seismic zone has had at least two earthquakes in the last several thousand years that were above magnitude six. And so that's big. Uh, that would certainly bring down the old buildings in Oak Ridge that, where they're building bombs with highly enriched uranium right now. They would just totally collapse in a, a magnitude six. And when, um, when a major survey was done of 24 seismic experts across the country and asked them to evaluate uh, the likelihood of earthquakes using different models, computer models, um, some places did it with three or four of the models. Uh, the median prediction of these, this group of experts for the U.S. Geological Survey was that the maximum likely earthquake in East Tennessee size is going to be 6.6. 6. Uh, so that's, that's huge. When the Department of Energy says, well, we're going to continue to use these old buildings that don't meet current codes for another 30 years, they're just rolling the dice. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We're hearing an interview recorded by K.A. Garlick with Ralph Hutchinson from the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance about the nuclear industry in the USA. I know you've got experience and, and knowledge on the expansion of the production at Los Alamos um, and the new bomb plant at Savannah River um, site in South Carolina. Can you give us an over, overview of, yeah. of how Y-12 fits into all of that? So uh, for the last five or six years, uh, our work in Oak Ridge with the Y-12 nuclear weapons plant, we sort of had a corner on the market on new bomb plants. We've been the one new bomb plant that was on the drawing board, uh, but that's not the case anymore because the modernization, um, mainly the money for modernization, um, is being ramped up. And now... Uh, the Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration have developed plans 
for new bomb plants to produce plutonium pits at Los Alamos in New Mexico and at the Savannah River site in South Carolina. Um, and in addition to that, our non-nuclear plant, the facility that makes all of the uh, arming and fusing and firing mechanisms, all the electronics that go in, it's very sophisticated. In fact, about 90% of the nuclear weapon is not nuclear, it's electronics. And the plant that makes those parts in Kansas City, Missouri, um, is new, uh, less than 10 years old, but they have plans to double it in size to meet their increased workload. So all of this uh, planning for new bomb plants is, is planning for new bombs, uh, which will mean more testing, new nuclear testing. And hand in glove with that, right now, just today, our Congress is talking about adding uh, tens of millions of dollars to the budget to accelerate preparations at the Nevada test site for the United States to resume nuclear tests, uh, should they be required. Of course, what would require nuclear tests? It would be building a new design nuclear weapon that hadn't ever been tested before, right? Because the military is not gonna field a nuclear weapon that's only been tested by a computer simulation. Uh, so um, at Los Alamos, where we theoretically already have the capacity to produce plutonium pits, and the plutonium pit is the trigger for the nuclear weapon, um, the, uh, the government wants to expand the capacity up to 30 pits per year at, at Los Alamos. And at the Savannah River site, they want to, they have a failed project there and they want to take that investment and turn it into a new plutonium pit bomb plant that will make 50 plutonium pits a year for a total of 80 per year. Um, in Oak Ridge, where we manufacture the secondary, the thermonuclear part of the bomb, um, the capacity that they're designing for is 80 per year. So the United States wants to be able to manufacture 80 brand new nuclear warheads or bombs every year, which means that in every 20 years, we can totally reconstitute our entire nuclear stockpile. Because right now under, our, under the New START Treaty, we can field 1,525 nuclear warheads at any given time. So this is really, an, I mean, this is the arms race happening. This is not, we're on the brink of a new nuclear arms race, or if we're not careful, we're gonna find ourselves in a new nuclear arms race. We are in a new nuclear arms race. Um, and it includes our labs are designing new nuclear weapons and our country's investing billions of dollars uh, in, in the manufacturing process to be able to make those new nuclear weapons. I think that the COVID-19 pandemic should have taught us something about uh, where we allocate our resource, resources, what's really important to keep us safe and secure. Um, the fact that we neglect healthcare in, in the United States in favor of military spending is a big lesson. But the other big lessons I think are one about being complacent about real threats. So people don't have to think about nuclear weapons on a daily basis and they don't, they just imagine, you know, oh, that, that will never happen. Um, but the COVID-19 pandemic should teach us a very big lesson about low probability, high risk events. I mean, that's what a nuclear war is, low probability, but incredibly high risk. If it comes out to slap us down like a COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I mean, not to dismiss or diminish the suffering, uh, but a nuclear exchange would make that look like a paper cut. Yeah, absolutely. 
we were planning a, a major conference, Stop the New Nuclear Arms Race, for the end of May. Um, mm. It was cut out by the pandemic. Um, but what we were hoping to focus on in that conference was specific things that people can do, the tools and the activities that are already out there that have been developed by ICANN and others that can be used right now for people who want to take on the serious threat of nuclear weapons. And our hope was to have this conference bring people from all over the world so we could learn how other people are doing it. People, the people who developed the tools were coming to talk about that. The people who have used the tools, you were coming to talk about the Fremantle campaign um, and things like that. Uh, we weren't able to pull that off, but the tools are there um, and they can be used. And we have to find other ways of getting them out into communities. So um, there are uh, instruments and tools to help you uh, look into the question of who's investing in nuclear weapons, which corporations are investing in nuclear weapons, and what you can do to pressure them to pull their funding. These have been used very successfully across Europe. Um, there are tools to investigate how universities and colleges are uh, linked up with nuclear weapons production and how you can pressure them to divest. Um, there's tools about how to deal with your local uh, governments, um, city, village, town, uh, regional, state, national governments to press them on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons or nuclear-free zones or divest from uh, corporations. I mean, all of those things exist. Some I know that you all use some of them from time to time. Um, just using the ban treaty itself as moral leverage to talk about the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons and to call for your government to uh, sign up with that treaty. Um, all of those kinds of things are out there, even though we didn't get to bring everybody together in one place in May, um, there's still really valuable tools that people can use on the ground that make a difference. Um, they are making a difference where they're being used. So, And have you um, had much success with any of your councils over there uh, signing on to the, the Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons? Well, one of the reasons that we were really interested in doing this in the United States was to bring uh, people from around the world who have been successful to our country where we haven't been doing, been able to get much traction with some of this stuff. And some of it's because they don't know about it. And other parts of it is just because our government's, of course, one of the most intransigent governments in the world. We rely on those nuclear weapons. We not only uh, insist that we're going to keep ours, but we're pressuring our allies around the world to stay on the team, stay on the nuclear weapons team with us, right? Yeah. Um, for me, the question is a matter of strategy and how we get from where we are now to where we want to be. So right now we have a nuclear, a nuclear ban treaty that has been passed by the United Nations and ratified by 38 countries. It needs 50 before it goes into effect. Um, so it, it has some moral authority now but it doesn't have any legal authority yet. But when that treaty passes, suddenly it will have legal authority. Now the countries that didn't participate like the United States and the NATO countries are all gonna try to dismiss it and say, well, we weren't part of that treaty and so it doesn't apply to us, right? And legally they're standing on a very narrow strip of ground um, and, there's, and their footing is a little bit wobbly. So my hope is that when the ban treaty finally enters into force, um, maybe before the end of this year, um, that in Europe we will see there a groundswell of uh, 
of activism at all levels, from the highest levels of government, the, the German Green Party, the German Bundestag at one point voted almost unanimously to get US nuclear weapons off their soil, but NATO over, overruled them. But when citizens were able to come to their government and say, look, we're, we're international outlaws if we keep these US nuclear weapons on our soil. Yeah. So uh, hopefully the five European countries that have nuclear, are US nuclear weapons on their soil will begin the steps to get those weapons that are now illegal, that it's now illegal for their country to host them, to come into, uh, to come into compliance with international law and have those weapons removed. That then brings the whole issue to the United States. And it, it's a leverage that we can then use with our government to say, look, you can't even deploy these nuclear weapons in these other countries. Um, let's start talking about this treaty. Uh, so it's a step-by-step -step process that I think um, we're in right now. And you know, for a lot of people uh, in the nuclear weapons countries, it's not the moment yet. It is the moment to educate. It is the moment to teach people and to prepare for that. But just like we're seeing in our country now with the Black Lives Matter movement, it's a moment. It's a moment that didn't exist six months ago. Even though the same people cared, the same conditions were, were true, um, it, the things hadn't all come together into the, the horrible, tragic storm that has suddenly created a moment where conversations, you know, unthinkable conversations are happening, right? Stuff that people couldn't imagine, even as mundane as the head of the National Football League basically saying, oh, yeah, somebody should hire Colin Kaepernick to be their quarterback, right? This guy was literally blackballed for the last three years because he took a knee, um, so things are turning around dramatically in, in so many areas because it's the moment. Um, in terms of the nuclear weapons ban treaty, we're building toward a moment, but we're not there yet. But when the moment comes, we have to be ready. We have to be educated. We have to be primed. We have to be in place. We can't say, oh, man, I wish I'd have done that. We have to be doing that stuff now. You know, the 75 years since the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is coming up, and as you spoke about that Oak Ridge um, was central to the story of the atomic bomb. Um, AREPA has marked August 6th at the Y-12 bomb plant um, and August 9 with Peace Lantern Ceremony in Knoxville. Um, what's AREPA's plan for the anniversary this year? Well, we've made tentative plans because we don't know what's going to be happening in terms of uh, the pandemic. Um, but we will be at Y12 at 6 o'clock in the morning on August 6, uh, 2020, the 75th anniversary. And we will have our names and remembrance ceremony. We may be wearing masks and practicing social distancing, or we may be doing it as we usually do. Uh, that's a three-hour ceremony in which we have drumming and chanting led by our Nippons and Miyahoji friends. Um, and we read the names of people who were victims of Hiroshima, and we ring a, a peace bell after each name, and we tie a peace crane on the fence there. Um, it's a very solemn and powerful ceremony, and we do it at that time of day. It, it's dark when we start, but it's when workers are coming in. You know, 1,500 to 2,000 cars will pass by, and they will think about it at that point. And then, of course, at 8.16 in the morning, which marks the time of the dropping of the bomb, we have an extended time of silence uh, observation there. Um, it's not 8.16 in Japan at that time, but for us, the whole feel of the day, that the, the light is coming up, the, 
you know, you can imagine people are getting, kids are getting ready to go to school. Um, people are making plans for the day. They're starting out to go to get to the market or whatever. That's what was happening in Hiroshima, Japan, when suddenly their world changed horribly forever. Uh, so we do that. Um, we will also have our peace lantern ceremony uh, on probably on Sunday evening, August 8th, uh, or, or maybe then on Saturday evening, August 8th, rather than Sunday the 9th, so that we can have more kids involved. It's hard on a school. Our schools are starting earlier and earlier in the United States. So um, we want to be able to do it when kids can come out because we put the lanterns in the water at, at when it gets dark, which is about nine o'clock here. So, um, so we're planning to do that. And we're making tentative plans for a rally and march and action at Y12 on, during the day on Saturday the 8th when more people can join us. Um, so we're hoping, and I'm hoping, as we coordinate our actions with what our colleagues are doing at other places in New Mexico and Lawrence Livermore in California and around the country, um, I think more than ever, this is a year when we need to elevate the voices of the Hibakusha, the people who um, have, during their lifetimes, um, taken on the mission of carrying the message to the rest of the world. And, and it's a very simple message, it's never again. Um, and I think we want to elevate that um, as much as we can. We're reaching a time when first-generation Habakusha are leaving us um, just because of age. And I think it's just critical that we elevate that message um, because it is the most compelling moral demand um, that we can make on the 75th anniversary. In our country, as we build our movement to abolish nuclear weapons, um, I just want you to know that we are aware of the work that is being done in other parts of the world, what you all are doing in Australia as well. We take great inspiration from the fact that the nuclear weapons uh, establishment is uh, being fought at every level. Um, from uranium mining, processing, all the way up to the deployment of the finished weapons wherever they are in the world. Um, so I've been able to go over to Buschel, Germany a couple of times, the air base there to demonstrate, you know, to cut the fence and go in in solidarity with our European allies. I hope someday I'll get down to Australia to get to work with you all there. But, you know, virtually, we've been following what you do on a regular basis, the webinars that you've been doing, but the long walkabouts that you've had. Um, and all of those kinds of things over the last years. Um, so I'm very grateful for the work that's being done in Australia. And I recognize that we're all part of one movement, that we're collaborating together. Uh, and, and I take inspiration from that. So thanks for what you're doing. So ARIPA has always uh, said we use every tool in the toolbox. Um, we just finished in uh, early April the... NNSA released a new supplement analysis on the new bomb plant. We just finished a major campaign to get people to send in comments. That comment period closed two weeks ago. Um, and so we submitted comments. Uh, we worked with our lawyer. We had a very expensive but very good expert on seismology review the plans and present more comments. So we invested a lot of time and energy in doing that not only because we need to do that up front, but also because it lays the groundwork for future legal challenges. Okay. Um, you can't raise in court at a later date something you didn't raise in the comments. That's just the way the process works here in this country. So we've been doing that. Um, we will be now turning our focus on our 
our Congress is starting to look at the budget uh, for next year. Um, and those hearings are being held. And so we'll be working to try to cut money from the nuclear weapons budget. The Trump administration asked for an unbelievable 20% in, I mean, they're cutting the budget all over the place, but a 20% increase in nuclear weapons, um, the largest single increase in the entire US federal budget. Um, and it's literally just trying to get to the feed trough before the Democrats win in November. You know, they just want to stockpile money. Yeah. Uh, so we have to fight on that front as well. Um, and then we work on doing what we call building nonviolent community, which is sort of a longer term vision of a world that not only doesn't have nuclear weapons, but is is no longer part of a culture of violence. Um, so we have certain things that we do there. We do a, an event we call a thousand cranes where we work with a bunch of young people to come together in front of a bookstore in Knoxville and we fold a thousand cranes in one day. Um, that's always exciting and fun to see the young people. And we talk to them a little bit about the story of Sadako and nuclear weapons. So it's an education thing as well. No, we do that on International Peace Day, which is in September. Don't know how that's going to work this year, but we're still planning, fingers crossed, that we'll get to do stuff like that as well. Great. Sounds like you're doing an extraordinary amount of work over there. <laughs> oh, we try to keep busy. Thanks so much to Ralph Hutchinson, coordinator of AREPA, the Oak Ridge Environmental Peace Alliance. He spoke about the White 12 bomb plant at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and AREPA's efforts to get the USA to shut down, not modernise, its nuclear industry. To learn more about AREPA, check out their website, www.orepa.org, or their Facebook page, which is called Stop the Bombs. Thanks for listening to The Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this program at www.3cr.org.au slash radioactive and we'll post links relevant to today's show on that website. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced for 3CR Melbourne in the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues.